Julie and Adam, thanks for being here. Thank you for having it's a, us. It's a pleasure. Well, you, you guys together, you wrote a book about the startup of uh, what was then Hydropothecary. Well, it actually had a name before, but let's talk about it as Hydropothecary, then Hexo. Um, and, and quick note, my daughter wears a Hexo sweatshirt nearly every day. Uh, so be that as it may, she's 11, but um, she's a huge, huge fan and she doesn't really know why other than it's a great sweatshirt. But I wanna, I wanna go back to the very early days of the story and the book um, that the startup, um, the, the, at least the, the first part was around a campfire, very Canadian. Um, Julie, talk a little bit about that because it's very, very compelling. Yeah, so the, the, the corporate lore is that there was a, a, a campfire and there was a campfire, just like not all the conversations happened there, but you know, stories being what they are, they, you know, the elements get pushed in, but uh, basically it was a Canada Day uh, Seb and his extended friend family group were meeting up at a cottage at Lac McGregor. And one of the party, Max Sear, who was working at Health Canada, uh, wanted to talk about work. He had been snowed under uh, dealing with licensing for cannabis. And he made the offhand remark to Seb that it seemed to him that no one wanted to be a millionaire in Canada. And of course, if you know Seb, the lights go off, there's fireworks and firecrackers going off all around his head. And, uh, and according to Max, when he got up the next morning with a hangover, stumbling into the kitchen, Seb was still at the kitchen table, running numbers, he had paper, he was like 100% focused and, and Adam uh, knows better than anyone uh, exactly what that moment would look like for Seb. Yeah. And Adam, I want to go to you because um, in the book, which is so eloquently put, and it, it's like building towards this excitement. And if you know the end point, which is today, uh, it, the steps along the way were so compelling. But you and Seb are married to sisters, correct? That's yeah. right. Yeah. And, and talk a little about that because um, the, the book, and I think really compellingly, and I don't want to ruin it or give it away, but the, the fact that you guys, uh, it goes really to your first double date, which I thought was really very um, instructive and very personal. Um, what's it like to sort of share that story with the world, sort of a personal relationship that leads to a business relationship that leads to what it became? You know, it, it skipped forward to yesterday when I received the first set of hardcovers, like the actual real prints. And, and I was looking at it with my wife and, and I opened up the back and there's an index, which thankfully the publishers and or Julie put in. And, and it was weird to see because my daughter's names were listed in it. And I'm going, wow, this is really out there. Like we just took this story and it's, it's out. Uh, but honestly, it's great. And I think that while there's certainly some inherent risk normally from getting into business with someone so close in your family, in our case, it worked. In fact, it probably is one of the necessary ingredients to our winning recipe. Yeah, it's really interesting. And Julie, I wanna to go to you because um, I'm like a student or a nerd or just have a lot of, or used to have a lot of free time before the kids. And I like made my way, I was living in California in San Francisco, making my way through like the like canon of sort of startup Silicon Valley stories uh, with Poe Bronson and the nudist on the late shift and Michael Lewis with the new, new thing. And the elements of what sort of those innovators were saying and thinking and doing, there is a, there's a parallel and there's something that's not like that at all. The parallel is of course, like 
ideas lead to um, staying up all night and thinking about it. It becomes not an obsession, but like, oh my goodness, why isn't everybody doing this exact thing, which is blood, sweat, and tears, but not, you know, it's with all due respect, it's not like brain surgery. It was a regulatory thing. You had to put together some capital. You had to move quickly. You had to have patience and then move quickly again. Like, like when you were writing it or thinking about it, how do you sort of thought about the really compelling stories that uh, in other industries had put together? Yeah, it, it was interesting because honestly, uh, so one of the, the uh, executive ones made the remark to me, he had come from the semiconductor business and he said that uh, that is the fastest business for turning around ideas uh, on the planet. You know, they come out with a new product every quarter and they've got to get it up, get it into market, uh, build all the infrastructure around that. And he said the cannabis industry is 20 times faster than that yeah. uh, from his position on the inside. So that really put it into context to me what what these guys were actually doing. And I suppose, uh, you know, I was there working as well. Um, seeing Adam and Seb together uh, was literally like watching you know, uh, one of those fast forward nature videos where the thing is coming out of the ground and suddenly, you know, 30 yeah. seconds later, it's the tree. And so many times I just wanted to like tap the brakes and slow down and just like, okay, what's going on here? Fortunately, as a journalist, I write everything down. I've got notes on notes on notes. <laughs> so looking at what we were doing, it was really hard to compare it to any other industry because A, uh, we were creating an industry with the government's okay, which had never happened before. Uh, this was uh, a federally mandated thing. So that had never happened. Um, there was an existing market, but it was black market. So, we, you know, we're trying to persuade true believers to buy legal pot. And we had this suffocating regulatory environment that actually at the end of the day and adam would back me up on this because he was the the, the lead thinker in everything uh, it actually created so many opportunities for out-of-the-box thinking that became truly the 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 earmark of the the cannabis industry but that very the collective thinking super creative thinking hypermanic pace everything happening you have an idea on monday and it's hardened and out in market by you know friday so uh, there really wasn't any way to compare, as I'm researching it, this industry to anything else. Yeah. Um, Adam, I'm struck by, uh, as Julie was talking, that uh, there are a couple things in history, and I'm not putting this on par with these two things, but like um, film and flight like happened in two places basically at the same time. And so different people sort of take credit for inventing flight and inventing film, but all the technology was there to do both and they happen re relatively in the same time. And that's not the same thing with cannabis. Cannabis existed for thousands of years, but was there a sense while you were building this that there were, I don't know, fives, tens, twenties, thirties or forties, like scores of people doing the same things around the same kinds of tables? Or were you just like, you and Seb, like, we got to do this now because now is the time or was it now we have to do it now because we think there's going to be thousands of more of these very quickly like what was the thinking about sort of what was the landscape of what you're operating vis-a-vis would-be competitors which barely existed at the time yeah 
I, there were, I mean, we knew we were on first name basis with basically all of our competitors, right? We knew who they were. We knew generally where they tended to focus and what they needed to do. And I think that gave us an opportunity to sort of chisel out our corner in a unique way, which was always the innovative products, right? Mm -hmm. Let's do something new on the product side, something new on the product side. I mean, a perfect example of that is we, sometimes innovation comes from a good place. Sometimes it comes from a place of, uh, of otherwise. And we had just been faced with a recall and uh, all said and done, we kind of wrapped everything up, put the pin in the recall procedural stuff on a Friday. And we looked at each other and we said, now what the hell are we going to do? Right? Because now what are we going to sell? A lot of the product had to wait that we had earmarked for sale. So it was Saturday morning. We're in the bunker right, which we lovingly called the room that had the, the vault in the basement. We were in the bunker on a Saturday morning there, Sebastian and I, and we had two of our other guys. Jay was with us, our, our leader on business development, and we're staring at these bins like, what can we do with any of this? And it was like things like, well, what if we decarboxylated a bunch of it? And we're like, how do we do that? Well, there's a little oven. We could try it. I mean, I'm talking about like a 12 by 12 room. So we got a grinder, we got a little milling machine, we got an oven, we cooked some of it down, we ran a test and it all kind of worked. But like, because of things like that, we had to, like, we always had to say, never, ever take your foot off the gas pedal because we knew the second we stopped with our foot off the gas for a second, others would zoom past us. And it was, uh, it was friendly, relatively friendly, uh, but it was a fight. And it was, it was all about time and it was all about first to market in so many ways. Yeah. It's so interesting because we see, you know, it seems like a million years ago, not only because COVID is intertwined, but like legalization was 2018 and so much has changed since then, but you were really trying, you at, you at Hydropothica and the Hexo trying to predict a market that was, of course, there'd been a market that was, you know, illicit for a very long time, but how do you predict that when it gets to be legal? like on the medical side, on the recreational side, what does, what does the fact, you know, the, the huge hiccup along the way, I think when, when the history book is written, not the one you guys wrote, but, but sort of uh, writ large sort of uh, zoomed out, the fact that Ontario still only has 300 stores in the biggest provinces, like we legalized in cannabis between Ontario and Quebec, there are basically no stores for the first year. Like it was a huge gut punch, right? Like, how, you know, you guys are gunning, you're planning for this date and then like not nothing and certainly product was moving, but it really, it's this idea that there was like, you were, you were ready to roll as a business, ready to anticipate the things, but you weren't necessarily, the rest of the world, including regulators and provinces just weren't ready yet. It's an interesting, like, like how did that, like Julie, from the writing part of it, like there's lots of blame to go around, like how the industry sort of developed, but it is this very compelling hyper entrepreneurial thing like that must have been fun to sort of consider as you were putting this all together. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, a lot of teeth grinding uh, going on uh, because you know again it, it also just from within the department that I was working in we would come up with a great idea for promotion and then it would seem like Health Canada would alter the rules uh, and we would have to stop and restart having spent all that money you know like they talk about the cannabis just uh pouring out of cannabis industry you know a lot of it was like dang like we we have to be thoughtful about where we spend our money but 
but yeah, it was uh, putting the story together was really looking at the humanity behind it and the people and the drivers behind it and the energy behind it. And at the end of the day, um, for me, uh, as a storyteller, I just had to keep my eyes on where the ship was headed because it was very easy to get locked into conversations happening corporately around me um, that could uh, flow off in different directions. I know that's not really quite the answer, but um, I think that, uh, you know, the, the idea of uh, all of those stores not really being open, I can remember once, uh, Adam, you will remember this, on the day of legalization, everybody was given $100 off the corporate credit card, and we all sat around in the marketing department ordering online to see how long it was going to take to ship from all of the all of the LPs. We, we hit everybody, a variety of products that we then brought into the office, we logged, and then we inspected. So it was really information gathering. Um, but the, the day itself was, uh, there was a lot of uh, anxiety about what those storefronts were going to be like, and and what kind of access our consumers, who we assumed were all waiting around, were were going to experience. Yeah, and it's still it's funny because that seems like ancient history. Not only because it was a couple of years ago, but also because we've had this interim, I don't know, worldwide pause, I guess. Um, but things have moved dramatically even since then. But but so much more even over the past, you know looking at it as like a 10 year chunk or a 15 year chunk, like it really is, the world has moved dramatically. And I guess I'd like to post to you, Adam, because what we are seeing really rapidly, I don't know if they're looking at this, but countries mimicking Canada, right? Saying, you know, you could do this. You could start with a medical program on a path to an adult use program. The regulations in Canada are so strict and Health Canada keeps a tight lid on it. Like if you were talking to someone in, I don't know, like Germany, right now, right? And saying, you know, you're gonna see regulatory changes. Here's how to think about going after it. Like what what are you advised? And it doesn't even need to be about cannabis, but like advice for entrepreneurs thinking about the next new thing. You know, the big, the big advantage that we had as hydropothecary by having our foot in the door as a medical company is that we had a lot of the operational stuff started to figure out. I can't tell you we had everything figured out, but we knew how to grow at scale we learned about inputs. We learned about expectations on different seasons. I mean, that was a huge one for us. What plants to grow, what time of year, right? Because it doesn't matter what's inside the greenhouse. It sometimes matters just as much as what's outside. Mm -hmm. So it's like, whether it's cannabis or anything else, get your foot in the door, start figuring out. I promise you it's different in reality than it is on paper or in plan. And if you have a shot at getting a foot in the door on one of these future emerging markets, take it and get in there and start figuring it out. Work with your regulators, right? We were never competitive with our regulators. There may have been some choice words behind closed doors, but what that meant was in every interaction, it was how do we work together? How do we help? How do we do this in a meaningful way? Because at the end of the day, we both want the same damn thing. We all wanted legal cannabis that was, you know, that, that was free from the hands of kids and out of the hands of crime. And, and, you know, working together made a lot of sense for us in every which way. But honestly, get involved, figure it out, and just be ready. Yeah, get ready for the slings and arrows and bumps in the road. I mean, I, I guess, Julie, you, you were there from the earliest days. Like, 
if you, cause you took good notes, you took great notes, uh, which is a, a nice, a great skill, uh, but also some, a great habit and um, mine are not great. They're sort of scattered all over my desk, like in a million different ways. Um, but, but in your, in your, like when you're thinking back to those days as it was starting up, um, could you have projected the height of it or where we are today? Like, was, was, was there a clear path? You're like, you know what? I bet three years from now we will be doing X. Was there ever sort of that thought in your mind? Uh, you know, it's interesting because when you see Adam and Seb together, you really believe, Adam in particular, because I've spent literally months of, in terms of hours, talking to Adam, uh, collaborating, interviewing, storytelling, like we, you know, uh, but when you, you spend any amount of time with him, you know that anything is possible, you feel like anything is possible. And uh, he's a builder, that's what he does. And, and uh, you know, uh, Seb is the guy who's like, yes, in this amount of time, this is gonna happen. But he believes it so forcefully that you can't help but just go, oh, I guess we're going over there because Seb and Adam said, right? So although I, I didn't see a billion dollars, uh, I definitely, knew that this company was uh was going to win something they were they were going to be winners at some aspect of this because a couple of reasons because of their amazing personalities their intelligence their skills all the rest of it but more than anything they had put like i think 1.1 million dollars of their friends and family money into it and i remember adam saying to me if this fails, we don't have a couch to sleep on because no one will have us. Right. So they they had to they had to make it work. And it is a credit to their friends and family who were the early investors who who saw that they would make it work, you know. Uh, it, it, so I guess it, the, the, the short answer is that I believed in them and whatever their vision was, I was all in. Yeah, definitely gonna go there. Yeah. And Adam, just one last for you, because that that is, of course, the inspiration of people who aren't you and Seb, right? You, you showed a leadership, you showed a vision, you were going after it and and convinced people like Julie to come along with you for the ride and people to give you money. But but with all of that and riding on all that and in this environment that was uncertain and you had to gun at it, like certainly the, the uh, uncertainty of what was the now and ahead like, how do you sort of personally deal with that uncertainty or did you knowing that like a lot was riding on this being successful, like a lot was riding on that license, a lot was riding, like, not just, oh, it's a business, because business is one thing, but I am in business with my brother-in-law. I'm in business with my brother-in-law with lots of friends and family money. I'm in business with lots of my friends and family money and my with my brother-in-law and we're like on this crazy ride that there's no turning back. You were there, you were doing it. It was getting done. Like, how did you deal with that? I guess stress or anxiety or just knowing that there was a lot on your shoulders. We, uh, we spent an awful lot of time at Pubwells on Preston in Ottawa, blowing off some steam, let me tell you. Uh, and we would always lovingly refer to that as our second office because, you know, I remember Mina remarking, Seb and I worked so damn hard just as Julie and everyone else that, you know, when we weren't working, we still wanted to hang out with each other and keep hanging out. And, uh, and I'd say to me, okay, I got to go meet with Seb. And she kind of looked at me and she goes, uh, you know, there was often a comment about more date nights with Sebastian than there ever was with my wife. 
And, uh, but, you know, with jokes aside, that was a necessary, necessary thing. In fact, whenever we weren't spending enough time together, we made a point to do that, to really make sure that we remained on the same page, that we were thinking the same things and that we were, you know, that we were there for each other. But if I can jump back quickly to, to the earlier question, you know, the amount of times I heard Sebastian say to people, potential investors um, back in 2013 and then again through 2014, saying, we have a real shot at becoming a billion dollar company. And he would often use the, we have a 5% shot at becoming a billion dollar company. Now, of course, the numbers were way wrong, but the, the spirit was bang on and he nailed it. And he said that from day one. And, and keep in mind, visually, what we're talking about here, people will come to my house, which was a semi-detached row house in where Little Italy meets Chinatown. They would walk down a flight of stairs that no one should ever have to walk down and would pass no the building code these days. And with a five foot seven ceiling where basically everyone had to crouch on cemented floors that I had put some gym mats down on top of with two Ikea desks right beside each other, about 150 square feet. We would say to people, this business we're asking you to invest in has a 5% chance of becoming a billion dollar company. It was an absurd premise, but it was true. And, uh, you know, he, his certainty and his confidence was carried us many, many times. You know, it, this is a good time. Usually insert the analogy about parents in the rowboat in the middle of the ocean. Uh, but I remember firsthand on my side, a couple, and there was one in particular where we were just having troubles and everything wasn't working. There was indefinite delays on licensing, more cost control issues, you name it. Everything wasn't going well. And I was on the phone with Seb. He was busy doing a bunch of things. And I knew he knew that I just wasn't feeling great that day. And it didn't happen often. But that day, I was the weight of it was carrying me down a little. And he said, hold on. I'll be right over. And he showed up. And we sat in my front living room, which we never did. We were always in the basement at the couch. So for us to have a cup of coffee and sit as normal people do during the day was a very surreal thing. And we just talked it through. And I, and I explained all my concerns. And I said, should we really keep going? Like, there's a little bit of money in the bank. Do we need to rethink this? Like, should we consider? And he's like, no, today we fight and we keep pushing. And then there may have been other times where I had to be the one that said that or pushed for other things, but that day it was him and he did it. And, you know, I guess with a business partner, you're, you're there for each other and you keep pushing each other. Yeah. It's really, I mean, it's a very compelling story. And I really, I, when I told you uh, before we came on that I had my daughter uh, do, do the research on the name of the books that I had already read. I, was, I forgot Poe Bronson's name uh, from, from uh, Nudist on the Late Shift, but it does have that feel of like, you know, just all the chips are on the table yeah. on this really uh, difficult journey with a no end in sight and really difficult to predict what happened. And so kudos to you, Adam, for making it happen. Kudos to you, Julie, for writing it all down and being able to tell the story because it really is compelling. There's one little side note that just really got me is you guys in the basement, in the book, you guys in the basement getting questions back from Health Canada. And they're asking how you're gonna wipe down um, the surfaces in room two of building three. And you're like, yeah, I mean, we don't have a building. We don't like, <laughs> it's like, Sure. Ask me all the questions you want. We'll put together answers because like, who would know, right? You know, it's just a, just, it's, it's, it's hypothetical. A, right. But I love that, that, that part was like, you know, you could see that you could just be in that room and be like, yeah, I mean, sure. We'll, we'll tell you exactly what materials we're going to rub, you know, how we're going to do it, when we're going to do it, what the materials on the countertop are going to be like. And it's just, 
you know, and, and you you look at it now, and, and not that it's turnkey when anybody's doing this, but there are you know 300 companies that have done it before. There are experts who've done it, but you know the seeds of the experts today were really <laughs> you and Seb in the basement, not not making it up. That's not what I mean, but like doing this hypothetical you know analysis for Health Canada. Yeah, what is an SSOP? And we were like a standard, a sanitary standard standing operation. We were like, all right, bring it on. What yeah. else you got? And yeah. we we're like, we'll get that. We looked at our watch, it was 5 p.m. We're like, we'll be done by 2 a.m. No problem. What's next? I love but, that. That was it. That was it. But I, I also love because you can imagine that that's your conversation, your thing. But everybody else got the same, you know, was answering the same things. And I would just love to the regulators on the other side being like, huh, those guys in the basement, they actually have that's a pretty good way to do it. Like, you know, I just like, I like, I, I really was compelled by the whole thing. I, I love books like this. So I write in the right category, but I'd also like think about the early days, early days of sort of cannabis legalization and how it came to be. So I want to thank you, Adam. Thank you, Julie, for making time. Congratulations on the billion dollar startup, uh, the book, which uh, we'll put links to as we post this. Um, and it's really an enjoyable read. So thank you for putting it together. And uh, thanks for sharing time. Thank you. Thank you.